Hey guys, what's going on? It's Jeff. A quick note before the show begins. The audio from these podcasts mostly come from live video YouTube streams on my channel. They may vary in quality from show to show and reference visual content not described to you, the listener. I'm sorry about that. If you prefer video to go with this audio, head over to youtube.com backslash from us, F-R-U-M-E-S-S for the whole enchilada. Who doesn't like a whole enchilada anyway? Get back, get back, get back to where you once belong. Get back, JoJo. I have been waiting in anticipation to do this deep dive. I am so excited. I don't know if it's exactly a deep dive or if it's a general review of something that we will probably be talking about ad nauseum on the Frumis channel, but that's just the way it is. It also is the very first day of our brand new partnership with riotstickers.com. Check out the awesome deal that we will be talking about later in this episode in the description below. You can check that out. Also, you can see it here on the uh, the scrolly scroll, and you'll notice it right here. It says powered by riotstickers.com. So go check out riotstickers.com when you have a chance. But we got to talk about the Beatles, so we're going to do that. Let's launch right into it, guys. So I watched the first part of Get Back on Disney+. Plus. I have to say, I mean, this thing is monumental. It's just a ginormous tomb of a documentary. You know, normally, initially, we were we were told, oh, you're going to get 100 minutes. Okay, 100 minutes out of 50-something hours and 130 hours of audio. That's fine. We can deal with that. And then word comes down the pike. But it's Peter Jackson. You know what I mean? Then word comes down the pike. We're going to get two hours. Oh, two hours. That's great. I'm happy. That's 20 minutes more. Great. No, no, no issue there. Then, all of a sudden, it's said that we're going to get friggin' six hours and it's more than six hours it's even more because it's my understanding that peter jackson was tinkering with this thing right up until november 25th 2021 which was my birthday by the way it was thanksgiving it was my birthday and this was the best birthday present i could ever receive it is just it's a gold mine of revelations people a gold mine i i just was in awe so here's the thing right let's just let's just dive into it let's just i got notes here we're gonna we're gonna go over the notes here's the thing that really sort of boggles my mind you know first first of all i'm like super stoked that we get such a an even longer running time than six hours i mean this thing is nearly seven and a half eight hours long i mean it is friggin it's a beast you have to think that that's roughly about 18 percent of the footage that is used is incorporated that is a much larger percentage than we were initially guaranteed and the problem the there's only one problem and it's not even really a problem as in much as it's like a sensory overload sort of situation i find myself rewinding every 60 seconds to take in what is going on because everything flies by so quickly. If you're not familiar with the, what is it? The scours, the scores, I'm mispronouncing that. The Liverpudlian accents, all the English accents. If you don't have subtitles turned on, I always, I watch this stuff. You have to watch it with subtitles because if you don't have subtitles, you're going to be lost in the ether. So I got subtitles turned on. I'm constantly rewinding. And also, there's something happen something happens every 60 seconds and it's like either a revelation or it's like something that you're just not expecting like wait what wait what and here's the thing 
there's definitely two levels. I, I 100% do believe there is two levels to digesting this. There is the Beatles fanatic level where you are just like every second is like a, a delicious four course meal that you are just ingesting. And then there's like, if you are just like a general Beatles fan, you know what I mean? Like you're not a fanatic or you're just like, ah, the Beatles. Yeah. I want to know more about that. I want to know it. It may not have the same impact, but for me as a fanatic, I was just sensory sensory overload. I can't stop. I keep rewinding the thing. As I said, and I'm trying to, it's weird because there's so much to get through. There's eight and a half hours to get through. And yet I need to like pause and, and stop and like think about what is being said or what is being done. Like all the, you know, all the time, you know, I'm, <laughs> and there's so many things I had to, I just started writing on my phone. I was like, I just had to, cause I wasn't going to remember it all. Um, but here's okay. So, so let's first, and this is a little bit of a repeat from, previous episodes let's start right here okay first of all we are watching a documentary that's been edited what does that mean it means there's several different layers of filter that the truth the truth being what actually happened there's several layers that the truth has to make it through before it reaches our eyeballs right the first one is the beatles are being filmed for this very specific project. So they're they're around cameras all the time back then, right? And they're not necessarily in the best moods with each other and whatnot, but they're going to already not be exactly acting or saying or feeling the way that they might be if a camera or a microphone wasn't recording them. That's the first filter of truth that we need to get through in order to understand what's going on. Then here's the second mesh layer is you have Peter Jackson sort of uh, showing us uh, heavily editing something. You know what I mean? Like he is taking this stuff and he is editing it in a, a way that has to appeal to a certain agenda, which I would say is the third filter. So you have first filter being recorded, second filter, Peter Jackson's editing. So he's cutting. And then the third filter is all the people that you have to appease with your edit. So Peter Jackson's edit politically has to has to pass Yoko Ono, has to pass Olivia Harrison, has to pass uh, Ringo and Paul. And each one of them has their own sort of agenda. So that's like three filters that this thing has gone through before it's finally reaching us the audience and even then even still you're getting you are seeing so much it doesn't matter what kind of spin that they want to put on this thing because they're trying to spin it and they are spinning it hard and honestly everything that we said up until this point was bit conjecture but even with those three filters even with the heavy editing even with all of it it's as plain as day what is going on on the camera, especially if you've read books about the Beatles, if you know the stories, if you understand the dynamics of this band, whether you were there in the room or from a historical standpoint, it is so plain to see the turmoil 
and the animosity and the it's not something that we're reading into it's like there it is so there it's there in the little ways these little sort of microaggressive ways that it will occur when you're around com polite company you know what i mean like they're around a film crew they're around you know michael lindsey hogg was the director who also is kind of like pushing his own agenda as well you know what i mean so it's like there's all it's so weird and that's the thing about documentaries that no documentary is going to be truthfully true you know you just have to sort of take what they give you and apply it with to the things that you know and you know try and plug in from a historical standpoint how it all makes sense you know yada 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 you have a thousand amateur Beatles historians out there with their own hot takes based on, you know, interviews and footage and, you know, understandings of the of 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 who these guys were, you know. So right off the bat, you see. So, OK, so then the, here's the next thing. Sorry, I'm trying to be as methodical as possible when I go through this because I know I'm just going to leave something out. I'm going to be really pissed if I do. So here's the next thing that we have to think about. Let's think about what the Beatles are trying to do and what sort of precedent has been set in the past. OK, what Jackson does really well is he absolutely paints a picture of everything that is happening in the moment he paint he paints a picture of the the stakes i should say like when we think about this 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 period of time we're not thinking about we're not thinking about it as a pressure cooker and what he establishes in this edit is a pressure cooker situation why is it a pressure cooker situation because ringo who is an actor they're all actors in one very in various different ways i'd say john is a bit of an actor because he was in How I Won the War, even if it was kind of like a novelty. Ringo, it's funny, Ringo probably has done the most acting out of any of the Beatles. Like, actually, like a working sort of actor. He's in a bunch of films in the 70s, in the early 80s. Shiny Time Station, you know. No, what is that? Uh, Thomas the Tank Engine. Um, but, you know, Ringo has probably done the most acting. He is, he has been cast or he's agreed to do a film called the magic christian and the magic christian is supposed to start production with i think it's with that guy dick odell not dick odell what is it uh Dan denny odell i'm i know i'm butchering the name this film is supposed to start production at the end of january the beatles have just come off the white album in november and while they're doing the white album, this is this was a real revelation to me as well. While they're doing the white album, they shoot a promotional clip for Hey Jude, which we all know it's a very famous sort of little, you know, it's a very famous piece of media. You know, it was like, and essentially, it's my understanding, that was the first time that the Beatles are performing for any kind of audience, whether it's like a paying live audience or a studio audience. It's the first time that they've performed in two years. They haven't done it in two years since, um, I believe the last time was, oh, I don't know. I don't know, because it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been, they did do the thing, the broadcast thing for All You Need Is Love. I don't think that necessarily would count in the same way. It was the first time that they had done anything like that in a long time, and they loved doing it. They did it at Twickenham, which I also didn't know. Um, they did the Hey Jude thing, and it was a very sort of free form, we're just gonna perform for the camera. 
and they're performing with a lot of different people in the room. There's like just all these people, and they're all going nah, 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 nah. You've heard, you've seen it. Paul's on the piano. Uh, John and George are on guitars, and Ringo's on the drums, and they just they had a great time. So, for whatever reason, or not for whatever reason, inspired, you know sort of just coming off of that experience in a positive way the Beatles are like yeah let's do let's let's get back out there let's either we're going to play live or we're going to do a concert performance there's all these different things being kicked around I'm not getting it exactly right and I don't want to waste time getting it exactly right because it was like a, a myriad of things there was all these they, they were going to perform they were going to do like a residency at a at a at a uh, like a ballroom in London or something in December, you know, there were all these different things. And then, Oh, we're going to shoot the concert. And then, Oh, we're going to actually do brand new songs. It's like the thing kept changing along the way until January rolls around January 2nd. That's when they come to Twickenham studios, which is an unfamiliar environment. Okay. It's a very, very unfamiliar environment for the Beatles. The Beatles are used to really, they become introverts, right? They have, they've, they've sort of re retreated from, the 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 spotlight in the public sense and they spend all their time as a recording band in abbey road right or in the new apple offices and Sav savile row is that how i say that i'm not sure if i'm saying that correctly savile row savile row savile row something like that that's where they spend all the time and doing their things but they're not like being the beatles publicly the way that they maybe were when they were a touring entity right so now it's like they want to go they they're like let's 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 dive back into that right and they're trying to figure out what it's going to be they decide hey let's do before ringo has to, for whatever reason they set this deadline on themselves because that's what real that's this is really where the pressure and the problem of everything comes from the fact that they want they have to get all of this done they have to put this show on and and come up with 14 brand new songs before Ringo starts shooting. Why would anybody, let alone the Beatles, decide to do this to themselves? There's a few reasons behind that, especially when it comes to, say, the Beatles. So they're not really sure what the thing is going to be. They kind of have some idea. They know there's going to be performance. They know that they want, they, they get this documentary crew in there to start shooting them uh, as they're rehearsing and refining and writing and arranging this material and you know we even up to the point where you know like the second day or the first day george harrison is like whoa like they're filming us like what even the dialogue bits like they're not even really sh i mean it's just all fly by the seat of their pants and they're just going to try and once again bottle lightning because that's what the beatles are used to do used to doing for the last seven years they've bottled lightning and they've seen astounding success in the bottling of the lightning. It's never been an issue before. They just get out there and they bottle the lightning and everybody loves whatever it is that they're going to do. The precedent before this for, for just sort of winging it and coming out on the other end, whether it was received positively or not, because it wasn't received very well. It was actually probably the first of the Beatles, you know, the first time the Beatles were not received with critical acclaim was Magical Mystery Tour. Brian Epstein dies. Probably the most significant event in all of Beatledom. Like the thing that, like the single most impactful thing to the Beatles, the rest of the Beatles trajectory or career, whatever you want to call it, 
you know, uh, or if you had to put like the top five moments in 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 the Beatles history, it would be Brian Epstein dying in 1967. He had been with them for five years. He was old. He was died at 32. He was older than them. And he was like this. He was like this, this, this figure of authority in their lives. He knew how to handle each Beatle and he knew how to sort of, you know, guide them from one thing to the next. So the Beatles were being, so, you know, it was Brian who's going, hey, we need to do two albums a year and we're going to do four singles. We're going to do four singles, one single per quarter. And those singles can't be on the LP. That's Brian coming up with that. That's not the Beatles. If the Beatles just go shug their shoulders and go, sure, we'll take care of it. We'll do it. And back then it wasn't a problem because the Beatles just knew how to, you know, Paul and John were so tight you know, they were so in each other's like pocket. And then speaking of being in the pocket, the band was so tight, you know, which came from those, those, those weeks and weeks and weeks of playing together live in Germany, you know, when they were just nothing, you know, the, finding that chemistry, that second language and sort of fusing it all together, you know what I mean? Into this thing where they could do it, you know, and then having that spearheaded by, Brian Epstein, right? But then Brian Epstein dies. And what do they do? They go and they make a film. And they have no, there's no script for the film. There's no script. There's no nothing. Paul is like, our manager is dead. And instead of like convalescing about it, we're just going to soldier on ahead. We just did Sgt. Pepper, which is the pinnacle of the Beatles. Some would say is the pinnacle of the Beatles, right? Like the pinnacle of everything, like the, 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 the highest ascension that they could reach. And, you know, maybe others would say, and for me, I think that that was like the ab, I think that was kind of like the Zenith, you know, and then everything after that, like they weren't br necessarily breaking new ground after Sergeant Pepper, like everything they do, the white album, which is my personal favorite thing that the Beatles have ever done. Like, I love that album so much. Like, it's it's not it's 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 not like it doesn't go higher than Sgt. Pepper in terms of like, whoa, we're doing this crazy sort of out of the box thing, you know, in the sense that and it's it's also kind of interesting. It's like, what do you do after an album cover like Sgt. Pepper where that in and of itself could have its own documentary? You can make a documentary about the album cover of Sgt. Pepper, right? What do you do? You do the exact opposite of it. Just a blank nothing. The Beatles. They go from being as busy on the cover as they possibly could be, where someone could spend hours and hours and hours in the room just looking at all the different little pictures to just having a blank slate. You know what I mean? The, the going from busy to minimalist, you know, that kind of thing. Um, David, we're going to get to David. We're going to get to all of that. We've got a lot to say about Yoko 100 percent. And thank you for joining us. Carpet beggar. Glad to have you here as well um freaking freaking so so the beatles the beatles have just come off of summer pepper they they launched themselves into magical mystery tour with no script as i said and it's just like it's just a film of them jumping on a bus going around doing weird shit and the beatles think the beatles have this attitude of like we're the Beatles. We can do whatever we want. It's not going to be a problem. Everybody's going to love it. And the music is great. And, you know, if you're a Beatles fan, of course, you're going to love Magical Mystery Tour. But I feel like that was the first time where, like, the general audience was sort of like it, they, it was it was screened in black and white. There was a bunch of it was it was a disaster. There were a lot of sort of disaster, disastrous 
things around it, you know, in terms of just not being like a, a smashing success. Um, and so the, the let it be the get back project. This is all all of this is just history repeating itself as it did with Magical Mystery Tour. Brian Epstein dies. The Beatles don't have that leadership. There's a void. John is no longer like the figurehead leader of the band. Paul, who had always been behind John, kind of secretly pulling the strings, is basically taking the, the lads from one project to the next. Okay, we're going to do this. Now we're going to do this. Now we're going to do this. Trying to sort of keep them together. And everything that they do is essentially brilliant except for you know this magical mystery tour album which is kind of a it was a flop it was a bit of a flop it was a misstep you would say and then they bounce right back with friggin the white album right after that technically magical mystery tour is not even an album it's actually it's a double ep the original output of it is a double ep and then capital on whatever they they, they switched it around and made it more of an more of an album right so they're just sort of like they're just sort of like not aimless but there's no then they're like let's form a company yeah we're gonna form a company that's a great way we'll consolidate everything that we do under this company and that and we'll we're essentially they're essentially managing themselves right so there's like this void in organization and you see that coming into january into get back there is no friggin plan and the they're they're sitting there like right out the right out the gate they're sitting there wondering what are we even doing here are we actually like why are we doing this like should we be doing this blah blah blah, blah. mind you they've just released a double album with what is it 34 songs and some of their greatest material that was the thing that was amazing about the beatles all of this stuff happened in seven years what we think of like every time we think like we think the difference between like say like hard day's night and the white album that that it would be like a decade of stuff and it's not it's just a couple of years they're just constantly changing and evolving and never resting on their laurels they just go on to the next thing so even when magical mystery tour maybe not doesn't reach the heights that say sergeant pepper does because up until that point that's what i meant by sergeant pepper being the zenith up until that point the Beatles have been like ascending higher and higher to the next level to the next level and then they reach this point where you they really can't push any further and so then it's just like kind of like going in a straight line and of course not wanting to do a repeat of Magical Mystery Tour which in, in a way was kind of a attempted repeat of Sgt. Pepper we're going to do the we're going to do the we're going to strip things down again we're going to do even though White Album is not stripped down it had there's a lot of there's a lot of incredible, intricate stuff going on on the way. But things are stripped down in the sense that you have Dear Prudence is just like John, essentially just John. It's very stripped down. You have Blackbird. You know, you have uh, uh, Julia. You have I Will. You know what I mean? These are very sort of stripped down songs. And you think about everything that they're doing on Sgt. Pepper, everything that they're doing on Magical Mystery Tour. And it's just like so congested with things that we're trying to do. And it's ironic, too, because they only had four tracks to do do all of Sgt. Pepper and now they have like eight tracks or 16 tracks with uh, the White Album. So they've doubled the amount of tracks, but now they're just doing, they're doing songs like Blackbird, which is Paul and acoustic guitar tapping his, tapping his, uh, tapping his foot, which is great, which is great too. There is brilliance in minimalism, in simplicity. And the Beatles were great at, ex at, 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 exploring brilliance through minimalism and exploring brilliance through excess and on both sides of that spectrum. So again, to flash forward now that they've come off the white on, they've done 
all this stuff, man. Hey Jude is their biggest single ever. I think it sells a pre or there's a pre order for, or it pre sells three million copies right off the bat or something, or maybe it sell, pre sells a million copies and then it winds up selling three million copies. Point is that even no matter what it was that they were doing, even if they had reached the zenith with like something like Sergeant Pepper, they were still like. They were their sales were like still like insane. They're still selling tons and tons of albums. Every single seems to be bigger than the last. Some would argue that Hey Jude is probably one of the biggest, the biggest Beatles single, right? Like it's just huge. It's ginormous. And it's a long friggin' song. You're like going like, what? Why would you make that? Why would you make that song so long? And it's just like, we're the Beatles. We could do that. And that's another thing, another piece of what I'm just very disorganizedly trying to tell you about. They're like, we're the Beatles. We've done the impossible. We have literally conquered the world. We have conquered pop culture. We are the, the, the point at the pyramid, just sort of like leading the way in, in, in all these realms and like fashion and music and movies and all this sort of stuff. Like, what, what do you mean I can't have a single that's over, you know, three minutes long with Hey Jude? Of course we can. And it's going to sell bigger than any of our other singles. And that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. Like that's that kind of mentality. It's the same kind of mentality as Prince. You know, Prince is like, I want a camel with a stack of pancakes on its hump, like riding a skateboard at three o'clock in the morning. And the organizer, the the assistant's like, what do you mean, Prince? We can't, that's ridiculous. What a ridiculous request. And Prince is like, why? I'm Prince. I've done all this stuff. I've done literally the impossible. I, you know, bec I've become Prince and I'm, this genius that is, you know, uh, incredibly successful. I, I don't see how anything is not, not possible. And I feel like the Beatles have that even further. Like the Beatles are the Beatles at this point. What do you mean? We can't just, you know, re <laughs> rehearse, write, record, rehearse and perform 14 brand new songs after just coming off of doing 36 songs for a double album, something that was very, very seldom at that point. Only like Frank Zappa had done a double album. And yet here they are reconvening. And then here's the other part too. And Ringo talks about being grumpy. They've been grumpy for 18 months. You know, that 18 months ago was when friggin' Brian Epstein had died, right? Like it, things had not been, there had been strains and there had been strains during the white album. Ringo left during the white album. That was, I mean, pe people were leaving people before George left the band, Ringo had left the band. You know what I'm saying? Like the, the seams were, were coming apart. So you have that. So you basically have this, you have this, this powder keg pressure situation where Ringo's going away at the end of January. We're going to go into the studio with a bunch of cameras rolling and we are going to write, record, or we're going to write, rehearse, and then perform slash record a lot. And it's a brilliant idea. The notion of the, the first time that we ever perform these songs live, they will be recorded for said album. It's a genius concept. And it's one that they hadn't done yet. And it made perfect sense. They had kind of done it a little bit with All You Need Is Love because All You Need Is Love was recorded live for the first global broadcast around the world where like a billion people watched it. You know what I mean? So you have you have all you, you have all of this stuff happening and the Beatles basically suffer from a startling amount of hubris. That's ultimately what it comes down to. It's hubris. It's this notion of I can like we can do anything and we'll get by 
you know, we work best with our back against the wall. John says that in the thing. And I'll say this, you know, in terms of like the like the review part, this this documentary is unbelievable. It's just so it's so good. It's not without its cr criticism, but it is so fucking good. It's like it, it really is an, an astounding, astounding, monumental work from Peter Jackson. He should win an, all the Oscars in documentarydom. Like he is a master documentary filmmaker. He goes from being a master indie filmmaker to a master blockbuster filmmaker to a master documentary filmmaker. And it's so true, I think, to what Beatles fans like want. You know what I mean? Like he really understands Beatle fans and he puts in all of these things, all of these little, you know, tasty nuggets that we all are going to love. Um, so let's just let, let's launch into these notes now. We've been talking for about a half hour, sort of setting the tone for what this is, and probably will continuously repeat myself. So I have my notes right here. So the first thing right off the bat. So here, okay, sorry. So here are all the factors that really sort of made the Get Back project fail, in my opinion. And mind you, Get Back and Let It Be are two separate things. Get back is what they were going, what they were trying to make and let it be is what the, the, the material that was recorded in January of 69 winded up becoming almost a year later in early 1970, right? So the documentary, let it be and the, and the album, let it be are sort of like the afterthought salvaging it's a salvaging of something that was supposed to be much bigger and ended up being probably i would say the beatles greatest failure right the failure that also killed them that destroyed them ultimately you know and you get the sense after watching this footage you absolutely get the sense that they, that they they are not going to come back from this you can see it you can see the writing is already on the wall you know what i mean to go back to the spin thing for a minute they are trying so hard to spin this as like it's not, it wasn't so bad it was it was a it was a massacre dude it was a total massacre maybe maybe i'm like <laughs> I'm using like really sensationalized words or I'm like over sensationalizing it. But my point is just simply, they're trying to make it sound like it was just that the bunch of the, the boys going in and recording an album. And it wasn't, it was the boys like reaching a level of dysfunction that they were never going to come back from that, that it shows them in their death throats. And it's sort of sad, but it also, it also kind of brings like, it, it brings a bit of catharsis. I think as like, you know, in, in terms of like answering a lot of sort of questions that we've all had as Beatles fans. And it also kind of like brings a little bit of closure. It brings closure to who they were as an entity. So here are the here are the things that I wrote down, the factors that that really set up get back to be a failure. Ready? Number one, Paul being the boss. We've heard, and this would only get worse. It would actually, it would reach its zenith with um, Maxwell Silverhammer when they're recording Abbey Road uh, a month or two from now. It, somewhere in January of 1969. Then whenever it is that they record Maxwell Silverhammer, which would be between February and, oh, 
God, would that be February and May, maybe February and June, some point, whatever the, that the date was, that was the final like nail in the coffin for the Beatles, man. They just all wanted to just wring Paul's neck from that one. But this is Paul being the boss. Why is Paul being the boss? Because he's trying to rally the troops. He's trying to be the band leader. What does the band leader mean? And I'm not talking about like the leader of the band, not the one that's calling all the shots, but he's the band leader in the sense that he's leading them musically. That's the band leader. So he's not trying to make all the decisions as like the, the leader of the band. He is trying to be like the way you have in an orchestra. You have a band leader who sort of leads the instruments, you know, arranging things, that sort of situation. And Paul is is trying to be that band leader. And the guys are not, are kind of not having it. You have John completely receding back, breaking down. And this is where people want to blame David. I don't know if you're still here, but this is what we're, the, the, here's where Yoko really comes into the picture. John drives a wedge between him and his bandmates using Yoko to do it. And Yoko is not necessarily a total succubus the way people make her out to be, but she is literally sitting there in the circle with them as they're trying to be creative. He is sort of self-sabotaging by straining the dynamic further. They're already in an unfamiliar area. They hate the acoustics in Twickenham Studio. They're, they're, they, they don't like it. They talk about that. We hate the, the acoustics here. Um, they are, it's like a big open sort of space. They're Hare Krishnas. George has his Hare Krishna friends. And Paul even notes, he's like, that's kind of daft. Daft means like dumb or whatever, or like foolish. He's like, that's kind of daft to have them there, huh? You know, that kind of thing. Um, you have, you have bad acoustics, as I said, and they don't have any, they don't have any new material. They've just exhausted themselves with the white album. So they're like, they're not coming, you know, when they came back from India after being with the Maharishi before they made the white album, they had demoed tons and tons and tons of songs. They had a bunch of material in the pocket ready to be refined in the studio. They had none in this case. So here is Paul trying to sort of really just sort of drum everything up. You have Yoko there and you see Paul is very tolerant of Yoko. It's not, it's George actually. And that, and it's not to be seen in this documentary because again, as remember, we talked about the filters of truth. You have Peter Jackson sort of having to negotiate Yoko Ono's final approval for this documentary. So of course it's not going to paint Yoko in, in her full light. And here's the thing too. Nobody is like, good or bad there's no good or bad there's just complicated people all of these people are complicated people all of them have done nasty things john lennon done plenty of nasty things paul mccartney done plenty of nasty things yoko ono most certainly has done some nasty things but they're all just sort of like they're all just complicated people it's not like paul is not a good guy yoko is not a bad guy they're just people man they're just people in situations that react depending on the situation john is at a point where he would much rather be collaborating and working with Yoko than he would be with them. Being there with them is boring now. It's not what it's not fun and exciting like it is when he's jumping in a bag with Yoko. You know what I'm saying? So it's like 
it's like there there is just such a there there's such a a a clear message being sent with hey yoko is it happened on the white album and it happened further here i think by this time they're almost at least paul maybe not george paul seems to be, have just accepted that yoko has to be there and the only way that he can continue on with john is if he embraces yoko so he's willing to make their relationship work no matter what kind of tension is between them by simply embracing yoko that's what i noticed here in this footage george you know and again peter jackson sort of you know yoko had opinions about things and she would let the beatles know the opinions i don't know if they're necessarily present here for the let it be or for the get back but they most certainly happened in, during the White Album, they definitely happened during Abbey Road. They're really trying to it really get the sense that Peter Jackson's trying to just show how Yoko Ono is a good guy here. That's what that's that's the narrative that they're trying to shove down her throats. And it's not a true narrative, but it's also not a narrative that she is literally preventing them from getting work done. Because as we can see in in the footage, she's sitting there not saying nothing, and the Beatles are just they're just disintegrating. They cannot seem to click in and do what needs to be done in order to draw from this material so you have paul being the boss why is paul being the boss two reasons one they, they don't have brian epstein anymore right so here's paul kind of trying to like be the backbone and the rallying point and the focal point to to drive things forward but they also are on this insanely tight deadline and it's just, you feel it looming. They use this calendar. They're counting down the days. And when you look at it visually on the calendar and you see how close their their final day is to like do to like shoot this concert with brand new songs for the entire world that's watching, you just, you kind of are like biting your nails. You're like, holy shit, how are they going to do this? Because they have nothing done. They just don't have anything done. So then you also have George asserting himself as a songwriter and just like a song, like a writing presence, you know? I have always felt that George probably does not get enough credit for Lennon and McCartney compositions. Even though they are the authors of the work, it's a shame to me that George that George's maybe George's input is just just almost criminally like low, especially when you see how Paul uses Mal Evans. That's his their 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 roadie. Mal had been with them since 1962 along with Neil Aspinall who worked on the, the the Apple side of things. Mal was like still like in this roadie sort of role with them every second of every day. And then Neil had sort of taken over at like, he's like doing all the operations at Apple. You know what I mean? Um, but you see how Paul is sort of using him as a backboard for lyric stuff for Long and Winding Road. You'd have to think that with George, it's about a hundredfold. So here's George now trying to work it out. They're, they're all just trying to work out songs. And that, we'll, we'll see a little bit later, leads to, to an infamous fight, the infamous scene of, I'll play anything you want me to play or I'll play nothing at all, that kind of thing. They haven't actually played live, like live live, like for a live audience in three years. So they went from literally playing all the time and having that like sort of those chops like honed and sharp to a situation where you know they're multi-tracking for 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 the white album right they're multi-tracking so the multi-tracking has sort of crippled 
their ability to jam with chemistry. You know what I'm saying? Like they go in because they become a studio only band. That's like, oh, okay, now you do your bass part. Okay, now you, they do some jamming. Uh, your Blues is a jam. Helter Skelter is a jam. There are some songs, like they did Your Blues in like a, a toilet. You know what I'm saying? And it, you, it has that feeling. You can feel the tightness of that jam, but it's like they probably, how long did they rehearse that jam? Uh, 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 with un, uninhindered. And here's the thing. The Beatles were, ver were, were used to doing things in a very short period of time. If you look at any of the stuff that the Beatles did, it wasn't like they spent three to four weeks rehearsing it, but they had, there was like a sense of, there, there was that, th th those musical motor skills, those, whatever you want to call it, that musicianship between them. There's, there was trust and chemistry and energy between them that allowed them to just sort of execute with such precision. And that had gone all the way back to the days of Hamburg where, you know, they are, they are just doing three sets a day, right? They're doing three, two hour sets a day of just the same material, working that material, working out those chops, you know, that, that, that those eye jet, like, hey, I'm looking at you, you're looking at me, that means we have to end the song right here, you know, that kind of thing. Whatever that musicians do, that secret language between musicians, they just hone it. They hone it and they hone it. And that's why when, when, when Brian Epstein says, hey, you have two weeks off, write, write a hard day's night, it's no problem. Because that's all they do. That's all they do. They All they do is play to music together constantly. And now, in the last three years, they, I mean, you have to think that they hadn't really seen much of each other since October of 68. So they hadn't spent, I mean, that was a long, that was a long couple of weeks. It's like, what, like 10, 11 weeks or something. They haven't seen each other. And now here they are in a room full of cameras trying to record and they can't or trying to, you know, work these songs out. So I really think that the multi-tracking was a huge factor and, and definitely hurt their ability to, to jam with chemistry in a way where they could form songs as like a whole unit, not just Paul going off into his world and writing like 10 songs off the top of his head or John coming in with a composition too, because that's the other thing that is sort of mentioned or alluded to here is that by this time, Paul and John are no longer writing songs together. Yes, they're still a songwriting team and yes, they still use each other's feedback to finish and complete those songs. But the days of sitting together in a room with two guitars and just pull polishing off a song and i think paul always said there was never a time where they didn't finish off a song those days were gone you know completely gone good afternoon amy we're talking beatles we're talking beatles um those days were gone so that's so I, I and then i said here i said here cameras are watching every move they're on a tight deadline they're in a foreign working environment and i said hubris rightfully earned in the past in the past those guys rightfully had earned this sense of we can do anything as we said we talked about the prince thing um that that is what is going to set them up for the biggest fail the biggest fall um and then you know i notice so when paul's trying to be the boss when he's trying to be the band leader and they're trying to 
make sense of all this material. George is kind of just noodling around on his guitar while Paul is trying to be the boss and be the arranger. And that's where the whole argument starts. Paul wants to be methodical while George wants to noodle. And George is like, well, we're never going to like come up with stuff unless we just noodle around. And Paul's like, look, I want to be methodical about this because we and, and at the end of the day, no one is right and no one is wrong. Paul is right because he's trying to think of the bigger picture and trying to get everybody, you know, sort of rallying towards their common goal. And George is also right because George is like, we don't work that way or it's not going to work that way for us. You know, we need to just sort of feel it out until we we get something. But the problem is they don't have time. So that's what ultimately leads to this the first of many sort of passive aggressive arguments between the various different members, Paul and George are going back and forth. And, you know, George, Paul is just, Paul's just getting very micromanaging. He's saying, don't play your guitar while I'm trying to figure out my bass part because we need to like, we need to get one thing, you know, concrete and ready to go before we move on to the next thing. And that's when they go, and that's when uh, George is like, I'll play this or I won't play this. I'll play whatever you want me to, you know? And that's the one thing that people always, always dwell on on the Let It Be documentary from 1970, you know? But now we see the full context of, of what it is. And it's not like, you know, it's not a big, nasty fight or anything, but you see the you see the cracking of the seams, you know? Um, the I wrote this. The problem is the show concept has put so much pressure coupled with being so big and being so rusty, it crushed the Beatles. So having this big thing, because here's the thing, whatever they're going to do has to be great and it has to be better than the last thing that they did because the Beatles do two things. They, they are always being, they're always great and they always do better than whatever the last thing was. And now they're staring down this barrel of this thing that is just going to cr come crashing around them because they're just too rusty. They can't seem to put this material together in a meaningful way. And they don't have much. John brings in Child of Nature and he brings in Give Me Some Truth, which eventually would wind up on Imagine. It's a great song. You'll see a lot of songs that would end up in, on Abbey Road and end up on McCartney and end up on All Things Must Pass all worked out here. Um, so they're, they're trying to figure stuff out. Nothing is working. You know, they're not clicking George. Um, oh, that's a little bit later. George, well, George does bring in, let me see where, uh, as you mentioned, I mean, mine, he talks about, I mean, mine at one point. So George brings in, I mean, mine, which is, uh, uh, one of his songs and it gets, well, you know what? I, I see it a little bit further down. We'll talk about it in a second. Um, they're just having serious problems. And finally, finally, John, no, uh, Paul just starts doing this riff. You literally watch. And that's the other thing that's just in, you're in awe of this, of, of what you're seeing. You are watching these songs, these songs that have been around for 50 years, these iconic songs that we all friggin love friggin come together right before your very eyes. It's just, it, it's astounding. It's it's just unbelievable to, to watch and witness. And it starts, you see Paul just sort of boom, 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 bo
he's trying so hard to come up with something. He's trying to pull songs. They're trying to pull songs out of thin air. And so Paul pulls Get Back out of thin air. He finds this he finds this this thing in this bass riff that he just keeps doing over and over because what he says is he has Ringo and he has George stop playing. He's like, you guys can't play. I just need to like figure this out. And it's like really weird to see and super awkward, you know? Um, but what I realized was no matter what they say about Get Back and, you know, they say, you know, Get Back eventually evolved into like a protest song and stuff. But originally Get Back seems to be without a doubt a desperate cry to return to glory it's almost like a death cry in a way it's like it's he just keeps saying it over and over and over again he goes get back get back get back to where you once belong he's not he's talking about himself he's talking about the beatles he's just playing this riff over and over and over again just like it's almost a prayer he's praying that the beatles can get back to where they once belong because they had just fallen out of such disarray and that is what get back is born out of and that's why it is so symbolic that these are the get back sessions or that the project is called you know that the documentary is called get back and that it ultimately ends up being called let it be because we can't get back so we have to let it be it's just so it it really is like, you know, you can't make this shit up. It's just so, it's so poignant. Um, but that was, I, I was, my jaw was on the ground as I'm sitting there watching him try so hard to make this work. He's just going, get back, get back. We got to get back. He just want it's, he's just talking to himself, you know? Um, so that happens, right? Um, there's just, there's just such a genuine, genuine sense of, of there's such a lack of enthusiasm and they just seem so uninspired. You know, Ringo is dedicated at this point. Ringo had his moment where he got up and he walked out and that was for the white album. He didn't like the way he was being micromanaged by Paul once again on back to the USSR or dear Prudence. So he bounced right. Um, now Ringo seems to just be in the pocket at all times. He's very quiet in the footage. He doesn't say much. And then when the cam when when they're not playing, he is su you really see Ringo's I saw Ringo's character in a way I'd never seen it before. Like you really see Ringo in this brand new new light. You understand him so much more and he's he's just there's way more going on with Ringo than I thought, you know. You kind of get this sense that he's just that there's not much going on, in fact, and that he's just this he's a brilliant drummer, but whatever, like and you, you, that's just so not the case, you know, um, so so Ringo is committed and he's he's really in Paul's corner in that kind of way. It's George and John that are at wits with each other. And they're especially both kind of at wits with Paul. Now, here's the other thing, too. People are going like. Well, they're, you know, it's not what we thought at all. Everybody's playing music together. They're so happy when they're playing music. There are all these lighthearted moments. That's the only thing that was left. What you're seeing are the last semblances of glue that are keeping the Beatles together, which is their musical relationship. So even though it's rusty, even though they are, their chemistry has eroded from multi-tracking or whatever it might be, they are there's still that love for making music together and you see that 
you see that's the those the, those are the smiles you're seeing people are like oh they're smiling yeah but like they're like in the worst situation ever like they're in the worst situation ever they escape it they forget it for a moment when they're playing music and trying to create brilliant stuff in this pressure cooker scenario um i wrote here the death of the beatles occurs at uh 70 minutes and 36 seconds george and we end up doing something george says and we end up doing something again that nobody really wants to do paul that's what paul ha paul does paul gets everybody to do something that nobody else really wants to do you know it was paul's idea to do sergeant pepper even though they were kind of all on board it was paul's idea to do sergeant pepper it was paul's idea to do magical mystery tour paul pushes the wagon as john becomes an acid casualty as brian epstein dies as you know he he sort of he sort of grabs the reins in an attempt to keep them from steering off the road. You know, that kind of thing. Paul says, if it turns into that, then it should definitely be the last for all of us. So George says, we end up doing something again that nobody really wants to do. And Paul says, if it ends, if it if this turns into that, then it should definitely be the last of us. Which to me is, I mean, that is... The, at the at the core of everything, that is the disintegration of the Beatles. The Alan Klein Civil War... The Yoko stuff, all of those stuff, all that stuff is is there too. There's no one thing that makes the Beatles straight up break up. But if there is, it's that core. It's that little piece right there. Um, George then says the Beatles have been in the doldrums for at least a year. And that could mean a, a, a myriad of things. That could be talking about Brian Epstein. It could be talking about the tension on the White Album. You know, remember, as I said previously... Um, they recorded so many versions of not guilty. I mean, they did like a hundred something takes of not guilty and they end up putting on the white album. They leave off not guilty and they put on revolution number nine, which is a nine minute avant-garde piece that easily could have been cut down to accommodate George's song. You know, I mean, it's like they're trying to like keep him down push him out as he's like sort of you know exploding as a songwriter um there's uh george didn't want and then george was reluctant or didn't want any of the songs on the show for fear of them turning out shitty so george has just been stockpiling songs and we know this because he releases the very first triple album in all of history called all things must pass his most brilliant work that he would put out that's where george harrison reaches his peak zenith sadly is in 1970 you know you could say that well you could say the same for john lennon kind of too and for paul paul is just kind of just paul is just keeps going he just keeps going and he keeps going and he keeps going um then there's talk of divorce the divorce and who would have the children which is just like sort of like something you say when you're getting divorced who's going to take all the children in this case uh, I think it's Paul or it's John who says Dick James would have all the children. Dick James was the publisher who owned the Northern Songs catalog and was the majority stakeholder in Northern Songs, which means that he is the controlling interest and could decide to sell the whole catalog, which he did at that time and sent the Beatles into such a, a, a tizzy. And that's how the Beatles lost all of their songs. They lost all of their publishing because of that. That's when, you know, you hear all the time about Michael Jackson bought uh outbid paul for all the songs he's i'm gonna buy your songs and he does 
Paul is still trying to get those songs back. Paul owns 23% and maybe John owes 24%. And then it's George and Ringo owning a combined 1.8%, 1.6%. So they each own 0.8% of Northern songs, which mind you is bringing them plenty of income. I mean, they are definitely making good money, but they are making a fraction a fraction of what they might be making uh, compared to Paul or John. I got my mind set on you. That was a cover that he did. Jeff's first cassette tape in 87. Actually, mine was the white album and the red album uh, in 1994. Those are my first, my first two Beatles Beatles. Um, and I have Alan Klein to thank for that red album because he was the one who, who, who packaged that together. Um, I wrote this. In hindsight, they should have done. Oh no! Well, let's let's save the hindsight for the for after because I, I it's suddenly watching this suddenly I'm going oh my god it's so blatantly obvious what they should have done in that pressure cooker situation but we'll get to that in a minute. Um, Lennon is so dismissive and condescending to George who's trying to show them a song and he's dicking around. It must have been embarrassing. So John, uh, George comes in with a song called I Me Mine, which eventually would find its way onto the Let It Be album that would come out a year later, but they wouldn't record the song officially until January of 1970. So a year later, the song gets recorded for I Me Mine. Guess who's not there? John Lennon, because John Lennon quits the band in August of 19 or September of 1969. John Lennon quits the band. Any Beatles business, like any Beatles recording with John Lennon, I think ceases after 1969. In the very least, it ceases with the other three Beatles in August of 1969 when they track live. I want you. She's so heavy. That's the last time the four Beatles are in the studio together as the Beatles tracking a Beatles song. That's it. August 1969. So they're months away from the final time. They're all going to be in a room together. They're months away from John permanently quitting the band. And once John quits the band, it's George, Paul, and Ringo, the Threedles, that would reunite for the for the Beatles anthology project in the 90s. They're the ones that are tracking I, Me, Mine. Meanwhile, here is George working out the song with the guys, and John isn't taking it seriously at all. He's not taking it seriously. He's waltzing with Yoko. They're dancing around doing a waltz while they're while they're trying to work out the song. Or when George is showing them the song, John is singing over George. So George is trying to work out, show them the song, and, jo and jo John is singing over it, like just with complete disdain for George's songs, for whatever reason, for whatever reason it, it is. And um, George, you could tell he's super hurt. He's super hurt. He says... I don't, I don't care. This is a direct quote. I don't, I don't care if you don't want it. I don't give a fuck. It can go in the musical. Then later, and this is later after he's doing the waltz. They're doing the waltz, just like completely goofing on, on George. He says, do you dig it, man? Just so desperate for John Lennon's approval. Mind you, the reason why they record I Me Mine in January of 1970 is because Michael Lindsay Hogg has decided to include them rehearsing it in the Let It Be documentary film. Why? Because there's this moment of John and Yoko waltzing during I Me Mine. So it's John and Yoko's waltz that even gets I Me Mine onto the Let It Be album. How about that? I mean, it's just crazy. Really, really, really crazy when you think about all that. So you could see that George...
He's just, he's taking it from John. He's taking it from Paul separately. That's building us up for what's about to happen. We're, we're going to get there. Um, John responds very dismissively when he shows them I mean mine. He says, George, have you any idea what we play? Rock and roll. He doesn't say rock and roll. He says, have you any idea what we play? Meaning like we don't play this waltz shit. You know, we play rock and roll. Meanwhile, just before they had been doing Maxwell's Silver Hammer, because that's a Paul song. And Paul, Paul's songs take priority over everybody's songs. You know, they would always experiment. They didn't give a crap about George's songs, or at least they would take George's songs seriously. But for every one George song, there's 10 Paul songs. And Paul songs have to be done the best. And then the next to Paul songs is, jo is John songs, but those can be more experimental. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> Amy, I'm not... Amy, I can't... <laughs> I, can't I can kind of imitate the... Sometimes I can. It's like, this is Paul... Do, do. Um, David says, sorry, guys, I've been really bad with the comments here. I'm trying to not get distracted. I wonder what John and George discussed after that. George was a guest on Imagine and they did a track bashing Paul. That was How Do You Sleep, which was like one of the most scathing, scathing diss tracks, which was also in response to Paul's song, Too Many People, which was aimed at John. That was on Ram. You know, um, and they had George, George played slide guitar on that. But mind you, how many songs of George Harrison's post 1970 does John Lennon appear on? John was always happy to have George on his songs in the Beatles and out of the Beatles, but he never was around for, for George's songs or very f rarely was or would do the most minimalist thing. Um, so day five comes around. The days are counting down. Paul comes up to John and says, um, all right, Amy, I'm going to try and do it. John, have you have anything written? And Paul says, we're going to be in crisis, you know, Paul, because John goes, John goes, when I'm up against the wall, Paul, you'll find that I'm at my best. <laughs> That's so bad. Sorry. Sorry, I'm trying. I'm trying. Well, well, David, David saying Paul wasn't even on George's when we was fab video almost 20 years later. That was done. That was kind of like a mini reunion after John had died. But that was because they were having. So, Paul, that that's a whole other bag of worms in a super quick nutshell. Paul had been doing some very sort of behind the back stuff to George and Ringo. They had a they had a bunch of beefs, man. He didn't show up for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 88. <laughs> Why do you think it was awesome? Amy likes my terrible Beatles impression. It's not good, Amy. Ringo talks like this. I wrote a song about an octopus, you know. Ringo, we got rings on my fingers. Yeah, Ringo did have... Did, Ringo had great songs. He had Octopus's Garden. He had I Love Don't Pass Me By. Is a great song. And they reveal another song. Something called Gone to Carolina blew my mind that blew my freaking mind um david paul wasn't around because it was just was it wasn't around to spite george it has that all they just they would play games with each other throughout the years but basically paul as as i was saying to get back on track i'm sorry guys i'm getting back on track here paul asked john if he was if he has written anything else on day five and john says no paul says we're going to be in christ we're going to be in crisis you know and john says well <laughs> 
when I'm up against the wall, Paul, you'll find that I'm at my best. But Lennon and Paul had been partners when they were up against a wall. Now they were separate writing entities where with Paul always writing a ton more songs than John. Um, then, then what's crazy is the, the mic. So here's the other thing. We talked about how they're in this really uncomfortable situation with cameras filming them and microphones recording them. And it's just, it, it, it makes it everything even more tense. And you can tell they're not really 100% like fully being the way that they might be in that situation because they're being captured on film. They're, they're holding back. They absolutely are holding back. So when people wonder why everything looks so friendly, everything looks so friendly because they fucking have cameras on them. I mean, duh, it's so, it's so obvious, man. It's such a blatant whitewash job. But the mic comes to cap to capture their tense convo and they start screaming, not like screaming, but they like start like acknowledging they're, you know, the mic is trying to like be like a fly on the wall and they're like purposely pointing out the mic because they feel uncomfortable with the mic there. And Paul says, I hope, you know, Paul hopes that he can deliver. And John mentions that he has Sunday off and that he ho he's hoping for a little rock and roller. But John is, the well has gone dry for John. It really has. That's that's something that uh, Richard Buskin always says from Buskin with the Beatles. The well has run, run dry for John. And they he's not going to get that little rock and roll. In fact, they bring in a, a record player to hear across the universe. Because across the universe goes back it did not happen right then and there they're pulling out they're pulling out everything because here's the thing too they've gotten this is another thing that we need to acknowledge or that we need to take a look at they have gotten so advanced with what they're doing in the studio because the beatles pioneered all kinds of recording techniques that are still used to this day i'm not going to go down that road but there's like all this stuff that they used to do it at that point in time it was very hard to recreate the songs that they were doing on those records. You know what I'm saying? So it's like whatever they're going to perform live because they're going to be recording, like the, the album will be comprised of the recordings from that per performance. Whatever it is, it has to be something that they can do on the stage. It has to be two guitars, a bass, and a drum. They can't have no Mellotron action going on. You know what I'm saying? They're not going to have tape loops going on and on. They have to just do it. They have to do it with what they got. And they start going through their songbook. And this is a revelation. There are all these songs that, like, I guess they thought were lost to time. That Dick James comes down and brings them lyrics from their songbooks. Because back then, you couldn't just look up your song. You didn't just Google your song lyrics. You had to like have a songbook with the official lyrics written down. It was like a whole thing. There's businesses, publishers. I mean, that's what publishing sheet music was all about. You know, if you wanted, if you were in a band and you were wanting to cover another band's songs, you had to go get the sheet music, you know, or you could try and play it by ear on the record. You go get the sheet music with the lyrics and you just sort of try and, and, and put, you know, you put the song together. And so... Dick James comes down at one point. Well, we'll get there in a second. What what I'm what I'm trying to say here is they they're they're basically reaching back because whatever that they do live has to be simple enough to be executed well live. And that's how we get one after 909. I had no idea because I had known everybody knows that one after 909 is a really old Beatles song. I mean, it's before they recorded any music they had written. It was a very, very early song, probably going back to 60 or even 61, something like that. Maybe 62, probably 61. 
And it's just one of the many, many McCart Lennon-McCartney compositions. And there's a lot of lost Lennon and McCartney compositions from that time. Those dudes wrote a lot of friggin' songs together. I think officially it's 275, but I mean, even more that that weren't recorded or given to other artists, you know? I mean, they just did so much. So they, so one after nine and nine, 909 comes back out, gets dusted off almost eight or nine years after the fact because they need material. They just don't have it. So they got across the universe. They got that. There's, um, wow, Ministry of Darkness with the friggin' wow. Okay, that's crazy. He's saying 50, 1959 for one after nine or nine. Thank you for that. David says, I wonder who was more spiteful or why Paul really did want, did wrong to avoid George like that captain got. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, another very interesting topic that I am going to uh, uh, not dive into because it's going to deviate us from our path. 1959 is one after nine or nine. So 10 years later, they're finally dusting off this song and recording it. Um, you have Don't Let Me Down. I've Got a Feeling is coming out. Two of Us is coming out. They're they're formulating Get Back, Long and Winding Road, and uh, Let It Be are all sort of are all sort of accumulating. And then meanwhile, while these conversations are going on and Paul feels the camera on himself, you know, Yoko was always there. Yoko was always there. She they're in this 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 intense codependent relationship where she is almost she you know he has fallen back and you know there was a time i'm not sure if it was during let it be or if it was during the white album there was a time where only john would only speak to the other guys through yoko that's why when they say yoko was the reason that the beatles were break, broken up and it's not that's not the reason why the beatles were broken up but yoko was a talking piece for john at a certain point so john would only express himself through yoko which definitely sort of creates all kind of strain and it's like perfectly the type it's such a lennon-esque thing to do to sort of just self-sabotage many many years later when you know lennon started to get you know do, started doing all these interviews in the 70s and right before his death in in um, playboy in 1980 he just started talking about like looking back you know retrospectively and having way more insight about that time than when he was in the middle of it and re recognizing that he had quit the band or that he had wanted to quit the band or that he was checked out of the band by 1966 that by by revolver so even before sergeant pepper he had been sort of checked out of the band ready to leave the band he had been in a weird kind of way going through the motions all those years and now during let it be at the you know he's using heroin he is in this crazy relationship with yoko who can never leave his side he is just really going through the motions he doesn't know how to tell the guys he wants to leave but very clearly doesn't want to be there anymore he doesn't want to work on george's songs you know he's not bringing any new songs to the table really he's got child of nature as we said no none of this stuff is clicking and meanwhile paul is just boom 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 boom. here's another song here's another song here's another song paul is just going nuts with the songs and yet i'm sure this you know for as hard as paul worked and paul worked so hard hardest working men in show business right paul mccartney for as hard as paul worked it almost seemed like John would effortlessly write something that was equally as iconic as Paul, even though Paul was putting in a thousand percent more effort than John was. And that always kind of balanced them out. Paul is doing, you know, positive show tunes and John is writing like these brutal, raw, honest feelings from his soul. 
you know, and then when you combine the two together, you get the yin and the yang of the Lennon-McCartney partnership, whether you need one without the other to have the Beatles. And you see that in their solo careers. John is missing the Paul in his solo output. Paul is missing the John in his. They, they are, and that's why they will never be as big as they could have been together as the Beatles, even though they were always big and larger than life after the Beatles. Um, I wrote here, oh yeah, then, you know, then there's a scene during this, all this tense going on, Ringo just starts messing around with, he's messing around with a microphone and he, he freaks out Paul with the feedback from the microphone and Paul just explodes. But it's one of those things where like Paul plays it off. He's like smiling and he's trying to make it seem like it's a joke. But, you know, I did not feel like it was a joke at all. He was super annoyed. And it's not like he was annoyed at Ringo. It was more about he was so like stressed about the situation. And then Ringo was doing this playful thing that Paul might normally be because Paul is just as much of a kid as the rest of them. But he's trying to be the adult. He's trying to put on the adult pants and the others are just sort of goofing off, goofing around. And I, I would say Ringo to a much less point in terms of who shows up. Paul is always the first one there. Ringo is always the first one there. George comes later and John is the latest. John shows up super late. They're always doing stuff after John uh, and then John shows up and joins in. You know what I mean? Um, this was, I, and this is when they talked about Hey Jude, and this was an attempt, Get Back is an attempt to bottle what they had done with the Hey Jude TV performance the, in, into not, hey, we did this for a song, now let's do it for an album. So we, we talked about that already earlier. P uh, people are confused, by the way, super confused. You know why people are confused? People are 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 seeing the last remnants of the glue holding the Beatles together in front of the cameras. So people go, oh, everything is happy, everything is great, but like they're what you're seeing is literally the only thing that's keeping them from flying off the wheels, flying apart. Because every other semblance of these guys are just like not, they're not together. You see it, you see it so clearly. John says, only two days to go, and then we have another Tuesdays off, referring to the weekend. George Martin then says, you only have 15 more days or songs. He says, you only have 15 more to go. So I'm not sure if he means 15 more days or 15 more songs. And then Lennon, and this is pure, this is what Lennon was doing to George, and this is what Lennon was doing to Paul. Anytime Paul tried to, like, boss around John or whatever, he'd always go, okay, Paul, sure. Like, completely, like, condescending and dismissing. Paul says, it's a small LP with a large hole in the middle uh, with a picture of your behind. So he's insulting George Martin, who, by the way, does disappear at some point. You know, George had walked off the, the White Album. He, he just, the, things had just gotten so bad. Um, and it didn't, it might have improved maybe a little bit with Let It Be, but it wouldn't, they wouldn't, he wouldn't come back as like a full-fledged producer. Glenn Johns uh, co-produced um, let it be. He wouldn't come back as a full-fledged producer until until Abbey Road. Um, and then here's the other thing, too. John, in later interviews, is always dismissing. He's always like, oh, yeah, he like rolling his eyes dismissive of like, oh, which one was that? Was that on the Pepper album? Was that on the Revolver album? Like, like not like, you know, pretending like he doesn't know what any of the stuff was, you know, like this history. But the reality is those dudes knew were super aware of all that stuff. They were they were subscribed to Beatle Monthly. They were re 
they were reading all the stuff and you see a lot of newspapers lying around and they they do this whole thing with the basically you know pakistani immigrants immigration it was a huge uh, sort of controversial issue going on in Britain and you have all the right-wing conservative racist SOBs who would want the Pakistanis out of Britain for whatever reason and so they wrote a song they they tried to sort of formulate get back into um, a protest song against Enoch this prime minister guy or whatever from from England um, and the lyrics were get back, get back to the country you once belong, you know, talking about this guy was a Pakistani, this guy was a Puerto Rican in the USA, blah, blah, blah. You know, it was the same thing in the USA, but with Puerto Rico instead of, instead of Pakistanis in, in Britain, that kind of thing. And, um, what's interesting though, what's interesting though, is these guys are super aware uh have a super sense of the their accomplishments and what they did so when john dismisses either songs or pretends like he doesn't really know what's what he suddenly you know you know how many tv appearances the beatles did i mean just so many appearances and then suddenly um john immediately knew that uh, a, a certain stage setup was around the beatles so around the Beatles was a program that they had done, and they were trying to come up with a stage, a stage scaffolding for this concert, the Get Beat, the Get Back concert that they're about to perform, and they're coming up with ideas and they're showing sketches to Paul, and Paul says, "Hey, take it to John and Yoku; they're the artists," you know. Um, so they go over it. But what's fascinating is Paul recognized that it was from a program called Around the Beatles, and so did John, except John called it Around the Beatles '69. And it's just funny because for a guy who wants to pretend like he doesn't know like anything or like just like trying to play it off, trying to be, you know, too cool for school, he's very aware of that kind of thing. He was very aware of that. This was looks like the set from around the Beatles in 69, which I thought was a very profound, interesting sort of situation. Um, and then. You know, they're trying to figure out what the set is going to be. And John is just obsessed with talking about plastic. And you could tell he's so he's he's dialing it in, man. He's phoning in. He's like, yeah, just make the set out of plastic. And it could have these big cubes of plastic. You know, they have those polymers. Meanwhile, they're supposed to be they're supposed to be like ready to do this show in like in like a week and a half or whatever it is. You know what I mean? Like there's no time to figure out what to research, what kind of plastic you want to have on the set. Like it's ridiculous. He talks in these crazy abstract terms as if they have time and everybody kind of acts this way. It's like so incredibly disorganized and you just get the sense that they are, they just, that they're they're They are surfing on hubris, complete hubris that they are just going to pull this off and it's just going to be another notch in the Beatles belt. You know what I mean? Um, Michael Lindsay Hogg says this to Ringo, and I thought this was so telling, talking about the pressure, talking about the strain of trying to come up with material and have it ready in time. Michael Lindsay Hogg, who we always talk about, is the, whatchamacallit, um, <laughs> Sam Haynes. Sam Haynes' Let the Day Begin was a tribute to John Har George Harrison's Here Comes the Sun. That is funny. Um, Michael Lindsay Hogg, who we, you know, it's funny. Orson Welles does come up in conversations like that's, and Michael Lindsay Hogg talks about him. Michael Lindsay Hogg is the illegitimate son of Orson Welles, which is very interesting. So 
he says to Ringo, everything you do has got to be good because all your albums are good. There's not a Duff album. It's got to be the best. You have the hearts of millions with you. And then Ringo responds, every time we've done anything, it's always going to be the best. So, I mean, that's the attitude that they have going into something so disorganized. Even with Magical Mystery Tour, maybe the, the movie flopped, but the album had Strawberry Fields Forever. It has I Am The Walrus. Actually, Strawberry Fields was a single, but it got packaged together. You have I Am The Walrus. Baby, You're A Rich Man. Your Mother Should Know. Like these just classic songs. And, the, you know, of course, all that stuff did really well. Fool on the Hill. You know what I'm saying? Um, and that's when he also says that we've been grumpy for the last 18 months in response to... Um, Hogg saying that this might be their last TV performance because he's sort of seeing Michael Lindsay Hogg is clearly seeing the writing on the wall. The writing on the wall is that the Beatles are probably that this might be the disintegration of the Beatles. He can like I'm sure he can kind of tell and he's trying to like con he's trying to like coax this into something and he's doing the best that he can in the situation. It's a weird situation, man, because it's like the, it's the Beatles. They're, they're the real bosses, even though he's the director. So it kind of like I'm sure it's not so dissimilar from what Peter Jackson is was dealing with when he was working with Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr on trying to put this out and trying to do something that would be honest and truthful for the Beatles fans, but also respectful of the legacy that Ringo and Paul are trying to leave behind. And that's what they're trying to do. That's what the whole that's what this whole whitewash campaign is about. Oh, it was actually a really friendly time because they they know this is the end. We talked about this previously on our previous shows. They know this is the end. They know that they are securing their legacy and therefore that everything should be left on a positive note, which is why we didn't see all of this footage for 50 years. We didn't see the footage for 50 years because to them, it was nothing positive. You know, um, it was like this, this glaring elephant in the room. Now, what's interesting too, is the Beatles were a complete democratic process. Ringo didn't want to go venture off to some exotic location to do the, the show. They had talked about all sorts of different places, places in England, places, you know, all sorts of exotic places. One place in particular that they wanted to do was this place called Sabratha, which was in Libya, I believe, right near Tripoli. And it's this beautiful Roman ruin amphitheater. And they wanted to have torches on the water. And they kept talking about 2,000 Arabs in the audience, like just this insane audience for the return of the Beatles, not only performing live, but performing songs that no one's ever heard and songs that were going to be recorded on their brand new LP that they were going to do live in front of an audience, which is an insane notion when you think about it. You're not a pressure. And then they're going to film it and then broadcast it around the world. You know, I mean, what you're seeing, the documentary that we have now, that's them. They were trying to make a documentary about the rehearsal process for this project. And that's how we get so much conversation and dialogue and talking about this, because they just let they were just the cameras were just flies on the wall. There's nobody is being interviewed. There's no interviews happening. There's no talking head interviews. It's just capturing things as they happen. But to go back to the veto power, so the veto power in the Beatles was amazing. And Ringo, who ha was set to work on Magic Christian, doesn't want to try out for the show. And Hogg is trying to negotiate. Michael Lindsay Hogg is trying to negotiate a bigger show. And he's trying to get Ringo on board. He's trying to ply him with this shot of a helicopter from the sky. And that's going to be so great and so, like, excellent and good, blah, 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 blah. And 
Ringo's like, yeah, that's great for two minutes, but I can't travel all that way for two minutes. And they're talking about all these different ideas. You know, um, let's let's take a, an, a, an audience with us on the boat and we'll, we'll sail down to the place. And George doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to be around what he considers to be commoners. And he's wor worried about the cost. How much is this going to cost? We still haven't paid off Magical Mystery Tour yet. You know, um, oh, George was for as for as spiritual as as spiritual as George was, he was also very materialistic. He was, man, especially when it came to money and that kind of thing. Um, but Ringo has all the veto power. The other three Beatles are not going to travel for the show because Ringo won't do it. And that's the way the Beatles worked. And it's kind of like an amazing system, considering the fact that that John and Paul have the, the lion's share of the revenue via publishing, via music, the fact that Ringo would have so much veto power that he, in, in his own way, despite all that stuff, that he is still very much like a pillar. It was four pillars of the temple that, that made up the, um, the Beatles, that kind of thing. Um, and then it's mentioned... And, and Ringo finally sort of agrees. He's like, yeah, 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 we, we'll, we'll do that. We'll do that. We'll go out to the amphitheater or whatever the, whatever the freak. It's mentioned that Paul and John have not been getting along. Lennon seems like he's going through the motions. Yeah, Lennon just seems like he's on autopilot. When he's approving like the designs for like this plastic set, he's just like, yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's good. Like he just doesn't care. He just does not care. And you can see the strain. You see them trying. And it's only when they're making music that they kind of are getting along and even though paul says at one point can you stop playing guitar because i'm trying to explain this arrangement stuff for you just stop playing for five seconds you know um but there there it what the best way to describe it is it's a freight train moving at full speed ahead almost flying off the rails at any second like any penny on the tracks is going to just derail them and they're just going to go flying and and crash you know um had they done the amphitheater in Sabratha, it might have lit a giant fire under them to pull from that place of greatness once again. So in a way, and this was part of like my, you know, I should have organized this a little bit better in terms of like hindsight stuff. Had they decided to go to a foreign location, I think it would have gotten them in working order. I think the fact that they stayed put where they were didn't really give them the sense of urgency that they needed to pull from that place of greatness that they that they were so confident that they could pull from. Like they just thought they could just do it. You know what I mean? And I think that they needed something to really sort of light that fire. And they didn't have that. And having that location in Sabratha where they're going to perform in the amphitheater would have made that a reality. George says, um, shall we do some other people's songs as well? That'd be nice. John says, I don't know any. I can only just bear doing your lots songs. And then George said, some other people's songs are much better than ours. I mean, again, full throwing full shade at George. George, you know, John is basically alluding, I can't stand to do your songs. I don't want to do your songs, blah, blah, blah. George is on the right track, though. George has the right idea. You should be, they should have been performing. And that was going to be my first thing. That was going to be one of the things. Should I just do it now? We should just do it now. Let's, let's, let's do it right now. In hindsight, Here's a couple of things in hindsight that could have saved the Beatles and could have saved this project. One, they absolutely should have done a cover set full of the rock and roll standards 
that they had done in their Hamburg days, and then maybe throw in three to five new compositions and record it all live. They would have had 14 songs. When you look at the, those albums, when you look at those albums, uh, Beatles for Sale, when you look at, uh, what is it? Beatles for Sale and With the Beatles, those two albums, half of the songs are covers. I think eight songs are covers on Beatles for Sale. And it's definitely considered to be one of the lesser Beatle albums, probably the the leastest Beatle album, right? Like it's one of the most obscure ones that nobody really talks about, Beatles for Sale. But the 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 cover stuff is good. Same thing with, you know, that there are covers on with the Beatles. Please Please Me, I, I think, has a few covers, but not uh, as many covers as with the Beatles and 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 Beatles for Sale. And that's in late, that's late 63 through early 60 oh and then 60 late 64 because then they do hard day's night and then they do beatles for sale right so they and beatles for sale uh, hard day's night is the first time that every song is an original like 100 percent. so the beatles are no strangers to covers the beatles have that muscle memory of playing them and at any time that they're not trying to rehearse brand new songs in this first part of the segment they are some they're gelling they are gelling. Their, 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 their musical chemistry is not lost, but their muscle memory for playing those covers that they used to play in the early days, it's still there, but they just need, they need to be able to, uh, they're harnessing, they're able to tap into that. And so what would have been smart is a lateral move of like, okay, guys, let's take, okay, lads, let's take, don't let me down. Let's take, get back. Let's take two of us. Let's take, I got a feeling and let it be or something like that. And then do the rest of them covers that we know standards that we love standards that we haven't performed on albums yet or stuff that we only did for the BBC sessions. Problem solved. There is your, your, your biggest problem solved. That would have saved the project. What would have saved the Beatles, one, they should have cut George in on the songwriting fully. George was already contributing to John and Paul's songs. He was in a variety of different ways, whether it was from like little arrangement things to maybe even straight up guitar riffs or whatever the, the case may be. George had some kind of input in some way, shape, or form. And you see him trying to do it now here during the get back sessions, and they are just shutting him down, micromanaging him, trying to control exactly what he plays. They should have brought him into the fold. They should have said, you know what? From now on, it's no longer Lennon and McCartney. It needs to be Lennon, McCartney, and Harrison. Had they done that moving forward, suddenly the lion's share and you know what they could have done they could have gone they could instead of a 50 50 split it could have been a 30 30 30 and then hey let's give ringo 10 let's give ringo 10 percent of that split and it's not for discussion right now but the very last pr proposed beatles album after abbey road that's right folks there almost could have been another beatles album proposed four songs from john four songs from paul four songs from george and two songs from Ringo and to keep that to keep that template forevermore or to keep that template moving forward but why not why not take the 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 stake that they had in northern songs which would become a problem in and of itself later down the road and just simply reorganize it or at least shut the door on Northern songs with the Lennon McCartney partnership and create something brand new in the same way that Harrison had Harris songs. 
you could create something brand new for all those dudes and just have Lennon, McCartney, and Harrison. Beatles songs, baby. Beatles songs. And then a lot of the a lot of the strain might be alleviated because no longer this dynamic, this hierarchy of it's Lennon and McCartney and then Harrison and then Starr. It now sort of folds in because Ringo doesn't mind. Ringo doesn't mind being Ringo. That's what he is. Ringo is Ringo, baby. He just does his thing. You know, he's happy with his place in the band. And it's said that he probably would have continued on with the Beatles. He was the only one who probably would have continued on with the Beatles from that point. He loved being in the Beatles in the same way that Paul loved being in the Beatles. Those two dudes didn't want the Beatles to end. It was really John and George more than anything that wanted the Beatles to end. I think those guys would have would have soldiered on. So you got it. They should have done those things. They should have cut cut in George and acknowledge him, acknowledge him for what, you know, he is and what is what he's contributing. And they should have done. They should have recognized that they weren't going to finish things out and just do some covers and a couple of originals and they could have performed that show they could have spent three to four days getting all that stuff together while they were putting on the concert and then here's the final piece of it george proposes that they do it at the cavern club where things all started where the beatles really developed their their, the, the beginning of their their fan base in liverpool go back just the way that they wanted to get back to where they once belong go back to the beginning by going to the Cavern Club and come full circle and do the Get Back show in the Cavern Club with the packed audience full of old fans doing covers with a couple of new songs that totally fit in because the songs, as we said, the songs are really sort of stripped down from where they were with Sgt. Pepper. You know what I mean? Everything's stripped down to be kind of like done live as like a live recording, you know, as they would kind of do on the rooftop. That would have saved the Beatles, I think, or at least maybe it wouldn't have saved the Beatles. Maybe they were they were fated to 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 dissolve, but I think it would have it would have breathed enough life into the Beatles that they wouldn't have ended when they did. That's the better way to put it. That's the better way to put it. Um, moving on. John says in reaction to bad chemical tea. Talk. John loved. John was like a. John was like a, a real connoisseur of tea, and he's talking about uh, like chemical tasting tea, I think. Or maybe he's talking about hallucinogenic tea. Who knows? Maybe he's literally talking about chem- chemical tea. He says, it turns me off, blows my mind, and floats me upstream, which is also the first lyrics, mostly, of Tomorrow Never Knows. Turn off your mind, relax, and float upstream. Or is it float downstream? Maybe I'm wrong. Um. Then they go into Susie Parker. I've had now I had Susie Parker, which was an outtake. And it blows my mind that they didn't use Susie Parker for this concert. They needed 14 songs. Susie Parker would have been one of them. It's so great. Susie Parker. Susie Parker. Come on, Susie Parker. It would have been perfect, man. And they just they couldn't. They, they, they scrapped it for whatever reason. There was a bunch of stuff, man. Well, there were all these compositions that were that were uh, Lennon, McCartney, 
Harrison Starkey, like all of them together, you know what I mean? Which also kind of blew my mind that I guess they had kind of arranged. Then Linda comes, Linda comes in, she's taking pictures and you get the sense that Linda is almost there to balance out the Yoko. Now, I mean, obviously she was there, but it, I'm just saying from like a political standpoint, obviously Paul wants Linda in there and whether, whether you needed that for storytelling or not, like, or information, like, giving to the audience like to give information to the audience bottom line is they you have these you have these um mostly uh dialogue bear things of linda just taking pictures it's a really cool touch man it shows like still it shows her taking the picture and it shows the still of the picture but you just get the sense that that's in there to sort of balance yoko um which is fine which is fine but yeah that you get you get that sense then dick james comes in dick james comes in with the songbook they're going through the songbook that the northern songs he owns the whole catalog and it's not just beatles songs he owns more stuff but he's the controlling stake owner and what would happen because of remarks that lennon was making in the press really sort of scared dick james and thought man lennon once again is drawing too much controversy i'm ready to cash out he thought that it was time to cash out and so he told the Beatles, like hey i'm selling this thing i'm selling this thing and it's funny right before this happens he shows up here in the get back sessions. I was amazed to see him there because literally right after that, at some point he sells the catalog and they're scrounging together to come up with the money to outbid whoever is trying to buy the Beatles publishing songs. Um, but what's interesting is you hear Ringo says to George, would you like to see what you have half a percentage of? Um, and George says, no, I don't. And, you know, again, because it's kind of like, you know, George was resentful. He even wrote a song called Only a Northern Song, which basically is like, it doesn't matter. Because here's the thing. The Beatles convinced George that his songs should go in with their songs as well, even though that he wasn't an equal stakeholder because that it would have been better that they would have all gotten more money if he was like um, consolidated in with them or whatever. And so George is writing songs and Lennon and McCartney are making way more money off of George's songs than George's, but George is making more money than he would have if he, than if he had done separate publishing, eventually he did do separate publishing and it was called Harris songs. That was what Harris songs was. Um, and Ringo owned 0.8%, which he still owned. He never gave up his 0.8%. He still had that. And I'll tell you, I, I think, I don't know if he still has it to this day, but Man, uh, you think about the millions and millions of 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 dollars of steady predictable predictable revenue that has come in from that, you know that kind of thing. Um, are we getting to, yeah, we're getting to the end here. So Paul and George argue. So then there's this another argument that's very similar to the one we saw where George was where where Paul was upset with George about like you know what what to play or what not to play, like you know when he's trying to like concentrate on his part. And they're just arguing over what whether chords are fashionable. George thinks a chord is a chord and fits a song that calls for it. Um, comparing chords to drainies, uh, pipe jeans. Um, George then sort of flippantly says, uh, you need Eric Clapton. And John responds, no, we need George Harrison. But it's interesting foreshadowing that it's first George who suggests you guys should get Eric Clapton because he's just feeling so alienated. Paul is so micromanaging and bossy. We understand why he's being so micromanaging and bossy, but he's just, 
he is just so he's just trying to keep the show from flying off the rails. He's so so trying to keep it all together. Um, John becomes very passive aggressive and, and anti. His he has you know John is a passive aggressive anti authoritarian state streak, and you know it comes out like all the time in various different ways. This this passive aggressive anti authoritarian streak and. He at one point he's saying, "Oh, you know, let's use the lyrics involving the 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 political stuff with the Pakistani and Puerto Rican uh, immigrants uh, for get back, which is just not a, a commercially doesn't make any sense for obvious for obvious reasons. But that's just kind of like where 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 John is, you know, John. And it's true, John's focus is on all of the avant garde stuff he's doing with Yoko. They put out two albums, man, of just like weird avant garde sounds." You know, and that's just what John John is into. And that's when I said here, I said that John and Paul should have just cut in George and Ringo. In the very least, you know, just to go back to that last part that I said, you know, just to go back to that other thing, if you're not going to cut, if you're not going to, here's the thing. If you're going to cut, let's say that they were going to split everything because the bands, bands that don't have any resentment towards money, like, let me rephrase that when money isn't like a factor of conflict within bands they like they prosper they go on they can they can move move onward it's like the, that that was the thing with the ramones even though certain guys were writing really only writing the songs in the band they split all the guys were necessary for the band and therefore everything was split 25 25 25 and 25 and you would imagine maybe they would never they would refuse to give Ringo twenty five percent, but that's why I was thinking Ringo should get ten percent of 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 the of the publishing, you know. And if not ten percent, then why not twenty five? Why not just make everything equal? Everybody standing on this equal like sort of footing, they could have soldiered on. Um, and then that's when you know Paul wants John to stop playing while he's discussing the arrangement as he's trying to show John what exactly to play and john is just not having having it and then they completely skip over now here is so here's where the 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 the, the first part ends brilliant place to end it george quits the band we've seen george trying to work with john and paul he's trying to like give like you know uh sort of um feedback or trying to say this or trying to say that and they are just they're just not having it. They're like, no, just be quiet or here, play this part, play this part and you'll play this part and we want you to play this part and yada, 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 yada. And you could just, you see that George is just, he's checking out, man. He's just super checking out. They go to lunch and something happens during that lunch and they don't make mention of it in the documentary. And I have to look it up and see if I could find it. There's a fight. Supposedly there's a physical fight between George and John, you know what? I, when we do part two of this review for the second part, I'm going to dig that out. I'm going to dig out that passage from the book that I have upstairs. There's a fight. George says something really nasty about Yoko. And John responds by punching him in the face. And because she had been eating his digestive biscuits or something. And that's when he says, I'm quitting the band. I'll see you around the clubs. Peter Jackson is trying to instead put emphasis on the fact that that John and Paul are just sort of shutting George out creatively, which I'm sure was a factor as well. 
But I think it's this explosive incident. And they say, John says, without giving any reference to what it is, so I guess we're just going to pretend like nothing happened at, just as George leaves, right? Okay, Minister of Darkness is saying that the fight was bullshit. I, what, like, you have to explain. Why, what about it? Yes, jo Joey says too. He, she did... She did sit on his cushions, man. She was sitting on his cushions. It's true. I saw that part. I was like, holy shit. Why do you think the fight was bullshit, Minister of Darkness? I'm curious to know. We got a commenter saying that the fight was bullshit. Uh, the fight was not bullshit, man. It, that's, that's what went down, right? Um, what follows is complete bedlam. They just start, they start jamming and the jam is crazy and they're kind of having a good, they're, it looks like they're having a good time for the cameras, but you can tell it's them just completely dissolving. Like any sort of organ organized effort by Paul McCartney to sort of drive this, this train into the station completely breaks down and he just resorts. He goes back to being a child like the rest of them in that kind of way. He just, they all are just bashing, bashing on their gear, doing feedback and, and jamming out and, and dancing and going crazy. And that's when Yoko gets the mic and she starts going, Aah! you know, doing her Yoko thing. And the other thing that they cut out completely, the other thing that they cut out completely, okay, Minister of Darkness is saying that it's been confirmed many times. I'm going to find the passage, Minister of Darkness. You're, you're, I'm telling you, man, that fight happened. What they completely uh, ignore is the Yoko wants a mic. If you don't know what Yoko wants a mic is, go Google it. That this whole exchange happens where Yoko is incessantly asking for a microphone. And when she gets it, she just going, John, John. And we see it in the thing. And then he finally goes, what, what? It's very, very truncated. And I'll tell you one thing. When you look at it, when you actually look at it on the film, it doesn't look as benign as when you like I listened to it. I listened to the whole thing, just the audio because we didn't have the video. And a lot of the audio that that they show has been there has been there for for many, many years. I mean, this stuff was all heavily bootlegged. So hardcore Beatle fans know a lot about the events of what has occurred. But something that we've never seen is the video that goes with the audio. So when you see the video, it doesn't look as maybe like uh, cringy as it sounds when you're just listening to the audio. But she's like, yeah, yeah. But it goes on and on and on. It goes on for a much longer time. As they're trying to have a conversation about business stuff, Yoko is, is vying for attention. And it's the first time in almost two and a half hours into this documentary that we see Yoko kind of like really taking center stage, apart from just sitting there reading a newspaper or knitting or, you know, talking with Linda. And, and that is... That kind of makes her, that's the stuff that makes her seem like a succubus to me a little bit. There's a whole scenario. And again, Google the thing, Google um, what happened. Yoko had a bed. They had a bed in the studio while they were recording Abbey Road because of Yoko. Yoko was injured or maybe she was pregnant and injured or maybe she was just pregnant and they had a bed uh, put in there in the studio while they were working. It's kind of crazy, but you think about it like that's what it took to get Abbey Road. It took moving a bed into the studio for Yoko Ono in order for us to have Abbey Road. So I guess that's a good trade off. <laughs> but um, and then you see you'll see George Martin come back to the picture, um, but they break down. They just they melt down 
they don't know what to do with the rest of the day. It becomes, and that's what had been happening. They just spent so much time farting off, dicking off, just messing around with it. Just no time. They're not taking it seriously. It's like they all, it's like they know they have to do it or they're trying to do it, but they don't want to. And their actions speak so much louder than whatever words they're speaking. So then of course the famous, famously John says, and he's, again, this is a flippant, again, just totally being flippant and passive aggressive and condescending and ridiculous. He says, let's get Clapton. Um, and, you know, I think the reason why they don't react, here's why none of them freak out when George leaves. They don't want to give him the power. They don't want to admit that George has the amount of leverage that he has in that moment. You know what I'm saying? And he has all the power. They're, they are on this tight deadline. They need him like you wouldn't believe they need him to do this to do this thing. And he's walked out on them. They're not going to replace him with Clapton. I mean, what kind of crazy controversy, controversial thing would that be? I mean, just been absolutely insane, you know? Um, they just don't want to give George any power. And so they just pretend like it doesn't bother him. But it's deeply troubling, deeply, deeply troubling. Um, and then you have the scene where Neil Aspinall, who's, again, he's a guy, you know, Longtime Beatles confidant, roadie, just like Mal Evans, been there from the very beginning, who is now in this position of power at Apple, the, their company, and George Martin, they're trying to break down what's happened of, you know, John and Paul versus George, and also acknowledge that John and Paul are writing separately now. So this was, they, they were like analyzing the dynamics of the situation all the way as it was happening in real time. You know, uh, and then Paul says something. And this was this was really telling of what Paul feels inside. So no matter how political, how how politically correct or how sort of uh, amicable Paul could be about any sort of situation, how he could just sort of let things roll off his back for the greater good. There's this moment where I guess John and Yoko, they're like, you know, being extra, you know, kissy, kissy, public display of affection as John has left the band, like they're just dicking off or something as, as George has left the band, George has left the band, not John. And he calls out and he says, get in your bag, get in your bloody bag. And then Yoko says, not again. And Paul says the mercy beat uh, award for best couple of the year should go to John and Yoko. And he is so, he is so like, again, like he's being so sarcastic. There, there's such animosity under his words even though he's trying to it's trying to come off like a joke like a <laughs> you fucker like that kind of thing you know and um and it concludes with you know it ends with the beatles heading over ceasing everything to head over to um george's house to convince him to come back into the band and that meeting does not go well and part of the reason why that meeting does not go well is because of what Yoko says. That's right. Yoko does a lot of talking or does some talking in that meeting. It's Yoko, Linda, John, Paul, George, and Ringo at George's house. I mean, insane when you think about it. It's insane to think what if Yoko was like a reliable person that you could like actually like get like some very unbiased 
like opinions from like but you can't because she's just ha she's on a not only is she on a Lenin tilt but she's also on a yoko tilt you'll never get like an honest appraisal I mean, that's a problem with a lot of this stuff that's a problem with you know to an extent that's why this footage is such a gold mine because it's just presented to us as like a fly on the wall thing we're not hearing paul skew we're not hearing ringo's pov we're not hearing yoko skew everybody's got a skew everybody's got an agenda everybody's got like a bend on history that that leans toward them we talk about this with the misfits all the time you see it with jerry only you see it with glenn danzig everybody has a bend on on history that's why this is so cool to see i can almost make my own appraisal based on what i'm seeing and based on what i've read around the situation so in any case they go there and that's where we leave off that's part one of this i'm going to do part two and i'm going to do part three and then depending on whether i can get my guest or not i may do an overall sort of you know um post-mortem with a guest who is Re remarkably highly regarded in the Beatle world. Um, I'd love to have him on my show. So we'll see if we can get him for that. But in the meantime, I'm just going to do, we're going to do part two and then we're going to do part three. Um, so that's where we leave off. We leave off with George quitting the band. And as we said, the Beatles all took turns quitting the band. First Ringo quit the band during the White Album. Then George quit the band during Let It Be. Then John quit the band right after Abbey Road. And then Paul finally quits the band, officially quits the band, I should say, um, during the release of Let It Be. So in actually, to correct myself, it is George who quits during Get Back. Paul quits during Let It Be one year later because Get Back is different from Let It Be, right? Um, the big question is, did Danzig watch Get Back? You know, Minister of Darkness, you said that the fight never happened. I want more of an explanation. You're, 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 what you said doesn't, doesn't pan out for me. I, you need to be more, you need to get more specific. I want to know more. What, wh where did you hear that debunked? That is not debunked. That was a, that's what happened. Why doesn't Jackson talk more about why George left? Maybe they'll talk about it in part two. The animosity between George and yoko was insane george was nasty to yoko too make no mistake um thank you for watching this with me uh watching i wasn't intending this for it to be almost two hours but you know it's the beatles what can i do uh, i want to talk for a moment about my sponsor riotstickers.com are you in a band are you guys in a band who is in a band who is a filmmaker who is an artist of some kind who needs stickers well i'm here to tell you that riotstickers.com is a great way to get your stickers pressed up. They are the official sponsor of the Frumis channel now. I am powered by ridestickers.com, as you can see right here, and we are running a special promo deal, and I guarantee you will not find some other leading sticker brands that I won't name, because I don't want to be mean, but let's just say their stickers don't stick very well. Um, don't offer a deal or 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 their deal pales in comparison to this deal, okay? And basically, it works like this. For, you can get 50 three by three stickers. So that's three inch stick, three inch by three inch vinyl stickers, 50 of them. When you use the promo code FROMIS and you will get $50, uh, sorry, 50% 50 off those stickers. So what the total pro, uh, cost for you would actually be 
2950. So for 2950, you can get 50 three by three square stickers or you can get 50 three by three die cut stickers. That's where it has like a particular shape. Okay. Um, Minister of Darkness, if you need stickers, please check out. The link is in the description, everybody. Go check it out. Um, you go to ridestickers.com to that link and you use the promo code FROMIS and you're going to get 50% off. You're not going to find a better deal. You're not going to find a better deal than that. It's not actually $59. It's 50% off. I'm going to fix that. I need to fix that. That doesn't make sense. It's um, But you get 50 stickers for 50% off when you use my promo code. And that, like I said, do you know how big a three by three inch sticker is? That is a nice piece of real estate. It's very visual. You know, it's very visual. So if you have a band, right, and you're trying to get your, 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 the, your whatever, your brand, your band or your brand seen, you need to have it big enough to be seen. You can't have these tiny little stickers. You need big stickers. So I got to tell you, and I've ordered, you know, I'm not just, I'm not just, I'm not just playing them up because they're my sponsor. I have done business in the past with riotstickers.com run by this guy, Joshua Grove. Great guy, independent business. Um, they do stickers for a lot of people. A lot, I know Robbie Bloodshed has done business with them. I know Joe from Mr. Monster and Daryl Chemical Company. He's done he's done business with Riotstickers.com. Both those guys will swear by Riotstickers.com in addition to me swearing by Riotstickers.com. So go check that out. Promo code FROMIS for 50% off of $59. So it's you getting 50% off $59. Uh, so that, that comes out to $29.50 or... 34.50 if you do the die cut okay um i'm a big fan i'm a, i am a big fan of riotstickers.com and i don't mind championing something that i feel really good about and now we're gonna play the video that's right there's a video there is a really cool video check out the this video all about riotstickers.com So, I mean, there you go, guys. I mean, what a cool theme song that is. So check it out. All that stuff is in the description below. Go visit riotstickers.com. Use the promo code from us. The link to get to that special deal is in the description below. Um, and we'll see you again very soon. As soon as I watch that second part, we're going to do the second part of this. Um, I'm going to play I'm going to play us out with the uh, Patreon classic. So peace and hair grease. And we'll see you next time. Hey guys, what's going on? It's Jeff. So I've decided to make a Patreon. What is Patreon? I don't know how to define a Patreon. Let me look it up. Patreon is a membership platform that makes it very easy for creators to get paid for the things that they're already creating. I want to do it full time. I want this 
to be my full-time job. In my efforts to make that happen, I've set up this platform. Is it going to work? Is it gonna be successful? I don't know, but I would rather try and crash and burn than not try at all. The goal is to create enough passive revenue so that I can continue to do this full-time, uninterrupted. Why? Because I love to do this. I love creating content. I love making videos. I love shooting films. I love doing podcasts. In case you couldn't tell, I love to talk and I never shut the fuck up. <laughs> so right now I've kept the Patreon incredibly simple. There's two tiers and that may change in the future. The Murdergram is a simple way to extend support for all of the hours and hours of free content on the channel for nothing more than a dollar. 38 cents goes to Patreon. What's a buck 38, eh? It's less than a cup of coffee, but it's a great way that you can show support for very little effort. When you divide that dollar 38 by the hours and hours and hours of time spent listening to this endless drivel of content, the dollar cost average works out. Next up is the YouTube casualty for $6.66. The YouTube casualty is loaded to the gills. Enjoy the archive ad-free as well as ad-free early access to special docu-style podcast videos, music reaction commentaries, and the like a month before they drop on YouTube, loaded with ads, I might add. You're also going to get exclusive content and behind the scenes content that is not available on YouTube or anywhere else. So you get to peek behind the veil. And believe me, there's a couple of choice pieces. Most of all, more than anything, whether you join the Patreon or not, I just want to thank each and every one of you that comes to the channel, that watches all the shows, that leaves comments, that participates, that subscribes, that's really the most important thing. This is just trying to find a way to earn a living as an artist. And with that, thank you for my TED Talk. Join the Patreon, because we need you! 66 cents.